Let's pray. Our Father, as we look at your word now, we pray that you will speak into our hearts and encourage us and draw us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may be filled with the knowledge of Christ, that our minds may be filled with the glory of our Saviour. Help us now as we look at your word, we pray. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. Now, Henry's already read the passage for us that we're going to be looking at this morning. Thank you, Henry. And um, I deliberately didn't start at the beginning of the chapter looking at the, um, the apostles speaking in all the languages of the people there and the quote from the passage of, from Joel saying, In the last days I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh. Because that is the setting of it, and yes, there was that supernatural occurrence happening, and people were saying, oh, these people are drunk. And Peter says, these people aren't drunk, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. Well, in many places where I come from, nine o'clock in the morning, it's quite capable for people to be drunk. But it certainly wouldn't have been that way in Israel at the time. Nine o'clock in the morning, people would not have been drunk, even if they'd intended to get drunk later in the day. But anyway, that's a little bit beside it. But Peter then sees the crowd who are, have their own explanation for these supernatural occurrences that are happening, saying people are drunk. And then he says, no, this is not what's going on. Now then, the modern tendency would be, look, you see these people speaking in tongues, look, you see these people doing signs and wonders, this is pure evidence that Jesus is who, is he, who he is, and you must come and you must get in on this supernatural spiritual train that's going along, and you must gra- gra- grab into it and get on it. And I've heard an awful lot of testimonies and preaching like that over the years, but Peter doesn't do that. Let's see what he does. And what's important. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. So first of all, he doesn't say, this is the written Lord Jesus in all his supernatural power. He doesn't start like that. If somebody comes to me talking about miracles and signs and wonders, do you know what my first reaction is? I'm saying, oh yes, how much of this is hype? What spirit is it? Is it demonic? Is it demonic spirit? I've seen demonic miracles over the years as well. I'm not interested, actually, very much in hearing testimonies about supernatural occurrences, because 99% of the ones I've heard over the years are either fake or hype or demonic. Probably 99%. Yes, the Lord does do signs and wonders. But, Peter starts off, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. He starts off saying, you've heard of this man, Jesus. He's not going to say, oh, you've got to believe this person is God straight away. He says, no, let's start with what we're dealing with. Everybody in Israel has heard of this man or seen this man who did go along doing miracles and teaching and causing a fuss. This man from Nazareth. He starts with those people at the point of reality. This man, Jesus. 
attested to you by God. In other words, Peter is saying, I could tell you what I know of this man, I can tell you that he's God. But unless he's attested to you by God, it won't be real. My testimony about the Lord Jesus can certainly help you along the way. But until the Lord speaks in you and confirms in you who this person Jesus is, you'll never be a true believer. I'm always very challenged by an event that happened in George Whitfield's life when George Whitfield was preaching in America in 1700 and something during the days of the Great Awakening and the Methodist revivals in this country which George Whitfield was part of. He went into some small town in America, probably in Virginia or somewhere like that, and a drunk man came up to him and says, Mr. Whitfield, Mr. Whitfield, I'm one of your converts. And George Whitfield replied, I can see that you're one of my converts, because if you're one of the Lord's converts, you wouldn't be drunk. How easy it is to convert somebody to our way of thinking with testimonies, with powerful speaking, powerful words. And we are told to persuade people to repent, certainly. But unless the Lord does that work of attesting who Christ is in you, you will only ever be a convert to a philosophy or a system. Only when the Lord comes and speaks to you, say, this Jesus, this is the one that you need to give your life to. And we can only truly give that wholeheartedly when we are convinced by God working through his Holy Spirit in our lives that Jesus is the Saviour. And this is what Peter is doing here. He's saying, This man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus. So the Lord back then did do many miracles through the Lord Jesus, signs and wonders. I wonder how many of you can tell me how many prophets from the Old Testament performed signs and wonders. I'm not talking about all the supernatural things the Lord did in his providence and his grace, but how many actually were the agents of signs and wonders in the Old Testament? Anybody like to give me an idea? Three? Yes, three. Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. Do you agree, Ed? Thank you. I've got confirmation from now that I'm right. That's always a good sign. Three. Three people in the Old Testament performed signs and wonders. Now, there are many, many, many supernatural occurrences that the Lord performed, whether it's the flood, animals coming into the ark, whether it's... Um, the River Jordan opening up as the priests walked into it and things like these. These weren't people doing signs and wonders. These were the Lord coming and intervening on behalf of his people. And after Elisha, the next person that we see doing any signs and wonders was the Lord Jesus himself. Isn't that amazing, really, isn't it? And yet these days, everybody wants to be a miracle worker and a signs and wonder worker. But what is the purpose of signs and wonders? Well, Moses performed some, 
in order to convince Pharaoh of his guilt and his sin and his condemnation. That's all that occurred to Pharaoh, wasn't it? Eventually Pharaoh let the people go, but he had all these things, these things that he kept on rejecting. And then Moses was talking to the rock and then hitting the rock and hitting the rock actually caused his problems. I won't go into all the details. Elijah came and gave a sign of condemnation to Ahab and then to the prophets of Baal. Elisha, where now is the spirit of Elijah? Took Elijah's cloak, hit the waters and the waters opened up and through he went and did one or two other things. But most of the signs and wonders in the Old Testament weren't there for the purpose of attesting to the greatness of the Lord so people were being converted. Most of them were there for condemnation of people. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? What's gone wrong these days? Why do people go after the signs and wonders? Generally, it's because human beings want to exalt themselves, and this is one of the reasons I would rather not go that direction. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he was teaching? He says, Jews look for miraculous signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Foolishness to the Gentiles or the Greeks, a stumbling block to the Jews, but for us who believe Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified. And the whole purpose of preaching Christ crucified is to lift up the person of the Lord Jesus in front of people. To explain who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done on the cross for us. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and seals that in our hearts so that we believe. Without that sovereign work of the Holy Spirit confirming that message supernaturally in a person's heart, that person will never truly be converted and saved. Salvation is from the Lord. Our role is to lift up the Lord Jesus before people. Peter didn't say, believe me, I've seen the Lord Jesus transformed on the top of Mount Carmel, which he had. He didn't go on about saying, this is what I've seen, these are the miraculous things I've seen. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, I knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven, and, and I'll not boast about him. He was talking about himself, by the way. He says, I won't boast about that, I'll boast about the Lord. I saw things that man is not permitted to say. Well, why not? Because anybody can speak about supernatural signs, with their counterfeit signs and wonders that were warned about, or even our own personal experiences of what the Lord has done in us. But that will not bring a person to salvation. The man attested to you by God. The Lord has to do that work in you. How? Well, he says, seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given to you. 
I can't convert you. We can't convert each other. We can lift up the Lord Jesus. We can try and persuade you to seek the Lord. But until he comes into your life and speaks to you, it will just be him out there, not the Lord in me. Anyway, let's continue. Attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus. After the Gospels, it's actually very rare for the Lord Jesus just to be mentioned by his name, Jesus. Almost everywhere in the New Testament, it's the Lord Jesus or Jesus Christ or the risen Lord Jesus, or the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or the Lord Christ, always given a title emphasizing his greatness, his sovereignty, his position in heaven. On a few occasions, very few, about four or five, we have him referred to as just simply Jesus. And it is always when his humanity is being emphasized When, you know, um, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The man Jesus, see how he lived. Okay, and that was in Hebrews chapter 12. The author and perfecter, the one who started it as a human being, showing us that we can live a Christian life, just as he did, with his help. But anyway, we won't go into that. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. He was delivered up on the cross as a man. The righteous for the unrighteous to lead us to God in 1 Peter 3 verse 18. He suffered once for all for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. A human being sacrificed in place of us on the cross to bring us to the Father. According to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, The cross was no accident. The Lord Jesus came to die. He knew he would. He had to become a human being to die in our place. We know this. But it was God's definite plan. He knew about sin and what the effects of sin were going to be when he organized before the creation of the world, the land slain before the creation of the world. The cross was planned. According to his foreknowledge, his sovereign will, he knew that if he was going to create human beings with any degree of free will, fallen as it is now and corrupted, that people would choose the wrong way. And so he made the plan of salvation so that we can be restored fully to him. It's the most amazing message that we can come back to God because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And Peter was saying... I'm not going to go off about the signs and wonders and the miracles that I've seen. I'm going to present the Lord Jesus to you, crucified on the cross, according to God's eternal plan. God's eternal plan before the creation of the world, according to his foreknowledge of everything that included you in it. If you think of all the billions of people on earth now and all the ones that have been, And think that even before the creation of the world, he was thinking about you. That's pretty special. 
It doesn't mean that we're any better anybody than anybody else or any more special than anybody else. It just means that in his grace, he was thinking of you. And no matter what goes on in life, and as I was saying earlier about the struggles that we've had in the last couple of years, knowing that the Lord has saved me for a purpose and will give me and my wife and all of us new bodies one day, we just say, thank you, Lord. In this world we have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And he overcame the world on the cross which he planned before the creation of time. And our part in it today is part of that eternal plan. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2 verse 10. He has a plan for us. And he wants us to come in on that plan. And not just have Christ on the side a little bit, or coming to church on Sunday a little bit, but our whole life to be transformed into the people he wants us to be, fulfilling his purpose for our lives. Now, I've had the privilege of 30-odd years in Botswana, 33 years in Botswana, 40 years since I became a Christian, now just over 40, and I just thank the Lord that he attested Christ in me, and I became a Christian. There is no better way to live our lives than doing fulfilling the role that he created by his foreknowledge, his sovereignty, before the creation of the world, what he created us to be. You will never have a greater satisfaction in life than being obedient to the Lord and walking in the paths he's got for you, because in that is the peace and the sure knowledge that you're fulfilling what you're supposed to be fulfilling in life. It's an amazing freedom. It can be very difficult at times, but it's an absolute amazing freedom. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We crucified him through the hands of sinful, other sinful people. We didn't put the nails in, the Roman soldiers did. But we crucified him because of our sin. He died because of our sin, because of your sin. And once we acknowledge that, confess that, and repent of that, and say, Lord, I'm coming to you, I want you, then he begins to take us on our life's journey. Now then, he said this, he said, Jesus the man. He hasn't got very much further than that yet. He says, Jesus the man crucified. Now that is basically what they would have known. He wasn't coming in with anything particularly new at that moment, apart from saying that you crucified him, even though they hadn't physically. He says, Jesus the man who died on the cross attested to you by these signs and wonders that he did, that you've heard about or maybe many of them had even seen. And he says, God raised him up from the dead. Now he's getting into the more supernatural aspect being risen, raised from the dead. Now, Peter was an eyewitness of his resurrection. He says, no, he's saying he raised him from the dead. You've heard many things, the rumours going round that we came and snatched his body away and things like that. He says, no, God raised him from the dead. And he said, raised him from the dead, loosening from the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Death 
could not hold him. Why not? The wages of sin is death. We're told in Romans 6 verse 23 and then in 1 Corinthians 15 that the sting of death is sin. Without sin, although a person may die, sin is not there to keep them in death. Now when we die, what happens? Our bodies die, we get put in the grave or the crematorium, ashes get spread or we get buried in the worms eat us, the body dies. Our soul leaves our bodies. It's the point of a man to die once, then face judgment. We come before the Lord, and he'll either say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share your master's delight. And we, without our bodies, will spend many, you know, until the Lord returns, in heaven, without physical bodies, without our new bodies. Or, if we're sinners that haven't repented, haven't given our lives to Christ, it's very very um, clearly stated that will be held in a place of punishment until judgment day when that punishment will be confirmed eternity for eternity and then when the Lord returns we will receive our new resurrection bodies without sin being dealt with and paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ our eternal destination is hell prepared for the devil and his angels. I'm not going to pull any punches on that. It is taught far more often in the Gospels than heaven. We are going to hell if we do not repent. We need to be absolutely clear about that, as I'm sure we are. But if we know that and we have repented, we need to still remember that to know the depths of his grace for us. Because that will be a motivation to serve him out of the gratitude and love we have, knowing that we are saved. could not be held for it because, of course, Christ was sinless, and yet he died for our sins. And now Peter goes into an argument for, from Scripture to attest who the Lord Jesus is. Again, he doesn't go his own testimony. He says from Scripture, look, for David says, and this is from Psalm um, 16, David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, you will not let your Holy One see the corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day so David wrote this I saw the Lord always before me and he said you will not let my body see decay and he says but I'll tell you what David did die he did go into the grave his grave is still there his rotting bones are still there his flesh has rotted away and so he's saying this passage where David was speaking in Psalms, he cannot possibly be speaking about himself. Because he says, the Lord said to me, I will never die, and my body will not see decay. You won't abandon me to the grave. And he's saying, yeah, but David's body is still in the grave. So this can't be speaking about David. It's speaking about somebody else. And he says, Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath 
to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades and death, and he and nor did his flesh see corruption. He was using logic, reasoned argument from the Bible to say, look, 800 years before the Lord Jesus came, God had said that the Lord Jesus would not see decay. He wouldn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. God raised him up, he said. And then he didn't say, I've seen him. He proves from scripture that he had to. And it's the word of God that speaks into our heart that confirms who Jesus is and the message of Christ. Testimony has its place, but testimony can never be a substitute for the truth of God's word spoken into us and sealed into us by the Holy Spirit, which is why we preach Christ crucified which is why we preach Christ was raised from the dead so that we can have forgiveness of sins. It's a wonderful message. But let's look at this passage a little bit. What is he saying? I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. And you will make me full gladness in your presence. Now remember the Lord Jesus when he was in Gethsemane, sweating great droplets, like drops of blood, in total anguish saying, Lord, if it is possible, take this away from me. I don't want to go through this agony of the cross. I don't want it. Struggling with it. And then he says, Yet not my will, but your will. He submitted himself to it. There was nothing easy. It was horrendous, even for the Lord Jesus, to even contemplate going to the cross. But he had these promises. Even as a human being, even though he has God become man, he still had to hold on to these promises. My heart was glad you will not abandon me to the grave. He was cut off by sin, but he knew beforehand he would not be abandoned. Therefore, my heart will rejoice. Now then, that also can apply to us. The Lord says to us, if we are in Christ Jesus, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3. The Lord will bless us. He has promised us a place with him eternally in heaven. And therefore, we can go through the troubles in this life. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Because the the Lord Jesus rose from the dead, we also have a hope. As Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15 again. Christ is risen, therefore we have hope. Christ went and ascended to heaven, therefore we have hope. We can go through the problems in this world. There's young people here, perhaps yet haven't had much of a problem in their life, physically or even perhaps have been through great mental anguish. But one thing I can guarantee is if you live to an old age, you'll have pains in your body. If you live life like most people, you'll have anguishes in life. You will not have an easy life. Nobody does. 
But if you know the Lord, you know where it's going and you know you have a purpose. You've made known to me the paths of life. He'll make known to you the paths of your life here, which may, may well end up in pain and anguish on a cross. But that's not the end. We have a hope and we will be with the Lord forever and we will get new bodies. And unless we preach Christ crucified and his resurrection, that message is not there. Maybe all that's preached is prosperity in this world, the blessings in this world, but that doesn't satisfy the core needs of our hearts. We need to know who we are in eternity. We need to know the risen Lord Jesus. We need Jesus attested to us in our hearts by the Holy Spirit so we can move ahead with confidence. I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him against that day. We need to know this. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection from Philippians chapter 2. I want to know Christ. This Jesus, in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God raised him up, and we're witness of it. And therefore God has exalted him to the right, his right hand, and the Lord Jesus has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now that little phrase is absolutely stunning. If you can put yourself in a position where you haven't read any of the New Testament because it hasn't been written, all you've heard of is this man that did miracles and that was crucified. And then the Holy Spirit has been put, I say this with reverence, if you like, under the control of this man, Jesus. Now the Holy Spirit is fully God. Now if you're a Jewish thinking with this one, there is only one God, and his Spirit proceeds from him. This spirit has been given to the Lord Jesus, for the Lord Jesus to give out as the Lord Jesus chooses. So now, the indwelling of a human being by the Holy Spirit is an agreement, a partnership between the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That is saying to the people, you see this Jesus is actually fully God as the Father. That's the force of this verse. And that is what would actually blow these people's minds. He starts off saying, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's now saying, look at the argument. He's now exalted. And the Father has given the Lord Jesus the same relationship with the Spirit as the Father has with the Holy Spirit. This verse, in a sense, is one, a clear statement of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus is not just a man. He has the same status as the Father and the Holy Spirit. And this comment is probably what just blew the minds of the congregation that were listening, these people that said these people are drunk. And he says... 
The Father has given the promised Holy Spirit and he, the Lord Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The Lord Jesus is the one now saying to the Holy Spirit, go and fill these people, I have died for them. And then he For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he takes the verse from Psalm 110 and says, Sit at my right hand. And he's saying to the people, The Lord Jesus has been exalted to the position of God's right hand. And God's right hand would only be somebody that had the same status as the Father. The risen Lord Jesus is fully God, ruling with the Father, pouring out the Holy Spirit. The man that you know is God at the right hand. And he says, then goes on to explain why this verse from Psalm 110 doesn't refer to David, but refers to the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus. He says, um, The Lord said to my Lord, for David, first of all he says, for David did not ascend to the heavens. Now then, just a little aside here. Some people have said, oh look, David didn't go to heaven when he died. It says that. No, it doesn't say that. This verse could be totally misused. He said, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says. So he's saying when David wrote this, he was saying this, even though at that time he had not ascended into heaven. He was on earth. And so he is saying, when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, he's saying, this could not be God saying this to David. It must have been saying it to somebody else. He was saying it to the Lord Jesus. That's what Peter is saying. It doesn't mean that after David actually died and his body went into the grave, that his spirit didn't go to God. It's not saying that at all. It was saying before he wrote these verses, he had not been caught up into heaven to see. We know of two people in the New Testament that were caught up into heaven and saw things. One was Paul, as I've already mentioned, and the other was John and the other Patmos, the beginning of um, Revelation. He says, the, spirit, the angel called him up, come up here and I'll show you the things that have to come. But he was saying David hadn't experienced this. He was speaking prophetically on earth about the Lord Jesus saying the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand Peter is saying this man Jesus is now seated at God's right hand let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you have crucified and that verse is the heart of Peter's message here. Know, therefore, and be certain. You must know with certainty in your own heart, in your own soul, in your own spirit, because the Lord has sealed it in your heart, not just by words, not just by testimonies, from the truth of Scripture applied by the Holy Spirit to you, Know for certain that God has made this man, Jesus, Lord, which means fully God, and Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one to bring about salvation. 
This is who the Lord Jesus is. And this is who we have to know if we are going to be able to live our lives with confidence on earth. Seeking the forgiveness of the Lord, but also knowing the, the commission of the Lord to us to do the work that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Do you know for certain who the Lord Jesus is? Do you know for certain that he is God, not just some man prophet? Do you know that we should be fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, all the time? We should be seeking his face. The rest will come. The relationship with the Father, the empowering of the Holy Spirit as we need it. But we need to be fixing our eyes on the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be preaching Christ crucified. Even though it's foolishness to the world, we need to have him always before us, following him. Know for certain that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Lord over your life and your Saviour so that you can come the Father through him. And as Christians we know these truths, I'm sure. But we need to remind ourselves of them again and again and again and allow the truth of this to really fill our hearts so that we bubble over with the joy of telling other people. So out of us the streams of living water will flow to other people so that we can bring the message of Christ to the world. But unless it's a reality in us, it's just a philosophy. God has to attest Christ to us in his way for us. And that has to happen to you. And if you're not sure yet, seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. But what happened then after he said this? Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And what cut them to the heart? The sword of the Spirit, sharper than any double-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit, burning this truth into our hearts that the Lord Jesus is who the Bible claims, and knowing that we are actually saved, not maybe hoping one day to get to heaven but knowing with assurance because Christ is living in us. I know, we know that we have come to know him. Can we say that I really know with that confidence that will allow you to go into the fiery furnace as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did. The Lord's able to save us, but even if he doesn't, know, King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not serve your God. When you know the Lord in that way, you can walk straight into the lion's den, straight into the fiery furnace, straight before people boldly proclaim, proclaim Christ, even though they want to put you in prison or whatever, because you know the risen Lord Jesus. Seek his face until you know that, till you're cut to the heart, until you know. And what did he say? They said they cut to the heart and, then, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We've got it wrong. We crucified him. We haven't been living for him. We've got this wrong, but now we know. What should we do? What have you done since you came to know Christ? How has it changed your life? Has it totally changed your life? 
And what do they say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Now this verse sometimes gets misunderstood that baptism is necessary for salvation. Unless you're baptized in water, you're not saved. Absolute nonsense. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. Salvation happens when the Holy Spirit applies the blood of Christ to our hearts. Our eyes are opened. We give our lives to Christ and Christ comes into our lives. And then we get baptized to attest to that. To tell the world. Now why does he say, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus? Well, first of all he says, repent. Have a change of heart. That's what repent means, metanoia. Have a change of heart. Change the way you think about the Lord Jesus. Change the way you think about your life. The way you think about sin. Stop following your way. Be totally 100% committed to following Christ's plan for your life. That's to repent and be baptized. Well, let's look at this word baptized in the context of the first century. Baptism didn't start with Christianity. Baptism was a Jewish thing. If you wanted to join the Essene sect, which happened before Christ, you joined the sect you were baptized. If you were a Gentile, you wanted to become a Jew. You had to go through circumcision if you were a man. You had to say you're leaving all your pagan gods behind. And you had to become a Jew. You were baptized into being part of the Jewish nation's fellowship. Baptism was there in the Old Testament. Not in the Old Testament teachings, but in Old Testament times. It was understood that it meant a clean break from what you were become something else, from being a Gentile to following the way of Judaism, to take turning away from the pagan gods to following the one true God. Baptism was there to symbolize that you were making that total break. Repent and be baptized. Repent, have the change of heart, then show people you're making that total break and you're now following Christ. The baptism doesn't save you. The baptism says you're making that break before people for the forgiveness of your sins repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins you're not being baptized into the Jewish nation you're not being baptized into the Essene sect you're being baptized into following Christ and trusting everything that Christ has done and that is what saves you it's in the name of Jesus that the forgiveness of sins is there not in the baptism We need to get that clear. Otherwise, we get back into rituals rather than the Lord doing it in us. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just a bit earlier, he says, um, God raised him up from the dead as we're witnesses, therefore, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he then says, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that wonderful? The Father has given the Lord Jesus the decision-making of who the Holy Spirit goes and dwells in. And it says, if you commit yourself to the Lord Jesus, break away from your old life, turn to the Lord in repentance and trust what he's done for you on the cross, you will receive the Holy Spirit. God will come and dwell in us. In John chapter 14, it says... The Lord Jesus says, 
the other comforter will come and we, the Father and the Son, will make our dwelling in you. God in us, the Holy Spirit in us, Christ in us, the Father in us. And what more can a human being actually ask for when you fully understand that? We don't need anything from the world except food and clothing as the Lord promises us. If we are indwelt by God and know that eternally we'll be with the Father in heaven and Christ in heaven, that fills our thinking, fills our vision, that motivates everything we do. You will receive the Holy Spirit who will reveal Christ in you more and more and your purpose for life and give you guidance and the empowering to do what the Lord's calling you to. I'm excited about it. Even preaching it again this morning, I'm excited about it. I look for the last 30 years and say, yes, this has been my life, 40 years. This is what the Lord has done for me, and I'm so grateful. I want it for everybody. What must we do? Repent and be baptized. Commit yourself to the Lord Jesus. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. Then live that life. It'll be difficult. But boy, you will know that you've got a purpose in eternity and that is one of the greatest privileges any human being can have. For the promises to you and your children for all who are near and all who are far off. That doesn't mean little children by then. It doesn't mean you baptise babies. It means this is promised for you and your offspring down the generations. That's the Greek word there which is slightly different to mean little children. And for all who are far off. Not just you here in Jerusalem people throughout the whole world. This is a promise that goes out forever through the rest of time through the whole world is what Peter is saying. This is to all nations will be blessed through Abraham. That promise being fulfilled in Christ. For everyone that, are, that, that the Lord our God calls to himself. And that's it. You are being called to the Father through Christ. Your first and foremost calling is to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're coming to him and you're living for him, then the Lord will tell you whether you're not going to America, but you're going to be preaching in the East End of London for the rest of your life, or you're not going to be living in the East End of London for the rest of your life, you're going over to Botswana, or you're going to Cambridge, or you're going wherever. <laughs> Sorry. It doesn't matter where the Lord takes us on to. Somebody else will be blessed through us. But if you are fixing your eyes on the Lord Jesus, if you're hearing that call to Christ, first and more, foremost, you're following Christ, then the other directions will come and they'll flow and it will be natural and you will know because you're keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith. For all that the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Can we save ourselves? Oh no, the Lord has to do it for us. It says, save yourselves here. Bit confusing? Not really. An analogy. If you were in a house and it was burning down and you had the opportunity to run out through the door, would you do it? Yes. You've saved yourself from the burning house. You've made a decision, I'm getting out. Now you're on the street where you're going and you're standing next to Buckingham Palace, can you just walk into Buckingham Palace and make your home there? No, you can't. Unless you're invited in, called in. We can't enter into heaven, salvation in that respect, unless the Lord draws us in. 
But we can save ourselves from the wickedness of the world by saying, I don't want it. I want to follow the way of the Lord. So not saving ourselves in terms of earning our place in heaven, but we're preserving ourselves from the ways of the world by saying, no, I don't want that way anymore. I want the way of Christ. And repentance and baptism are all about that change of heart and then declaring to the world that I want to follow Christ in his way. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Those who received his word. Remember what I was saying about the Father attests Christ to us through primarily his word sealed in us by the Holy Spirit. Not so much by the signs and wonders. They do have a purpose as and when the Lord chooses to do them. But it is the truth of his word sealed in us that brings that conviction that reveals Christ in us that we need. Those that received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 in one day. If I see one person saved, I'm rejoicing and happy. But it's no more difficult to preach to 3,000 people and see 3,000 people saved as to see one person saved. It's the same message. The response is not dependent on us. It's what the, who the Lord's working in. That day was an amazing day. 3,000 saved. Today, you and I are called to preach the same message, to uplift the same Lord Jesus Christ, and whether it's one person or 3,000 people is not the issue. It's whether we have lifted up the Lord Jesus and people are being cut to the heart as the Holy Spirit works. And then the results of this repentance, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Their lives were turned round. They became part of the people of God, not the people of the world. And if you truly have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ in fullness, you will not want to compromise with the world. You'll be so filled and thrilled with who he is. Your greatest joy will be coming out and being separate to devote yourselves to the teachings of the truth, not the distractions of the world. To being in fellowship with other believers that you can enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ together. The breaking of bread, the proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. Reminding ourselves of what we were and what we are in Christ and to prayers. Speaking to the Father on behalf of each other praying for him to come and sort out this messed up world, but knowing that through Christ we come to the throne of grace without any hindrance, boldly, and that he hears us. It is the most wonderful privilege. Remember, Peter started saying, this man Jesus, and ended up, is now Lord and Christ and Lord of your lives. The process of starting where a person is Lifting up the Lord Jesus until the Father through the Holy Spirit comes and convicts that person and seals that truth into your hearts. And then you can rise up, you can arise and serve with that total confidence and that boldness. Those that know their God will do great exploits. Do you know the Lord in this way? 
or have you just heard about him and you're still thinking do I really know him what is it seek him knock on the door be open seek him with your whole heart read the scriptures allow the Holy Spirit to seal that in you until you say I know that I know I know that I've come to know him I know that my Redeemer lives I know that Christ lives in me therefore I will speak I believed therefore I have spoken with that same spirit we therefore speak let's pray our Father in heaven thank you for our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ so many people just see him as a man that may or may not have lived a miracle worker maybe a prophet but we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is God indeed one with the Father and the Holy Spirit and thank you that you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, want to come and live in us. Father, please now speak to each one of us. Seal these words in our hearts that we may be bold to speak, that we may rejoice in Christ, that out of us the streams of living water will flow to this world. And Lord, that we can have that calm assurance and our heart rejoices because we know the paths of life. And Father, just as Peter spoke back then to the crowd then, may we also be bold to speak to the people in this world. And may you give us the words to speak to the right people at the right time so people's hearts are cut to the bone, cut to the soul and spirit, so that they too may repent and give their lives to our lovely, wonderful, risen Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you, we thank you. We're so grateful that you've saved us. And Father, may each of us here this morning be filled with that joy inexpressible as you shed abroad your love in our hearts through your Holy Spirit that you've promised. But thank you, Father, for the Lord Jesus Christ as he died for us on the cross and saved us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.